Hey, good morning, uh, everybody. I'm glad, uh, glad to see everybody. One, um, one thing I want to highlight before we uh, jump in. For the last several weeks, we have been um, highlighting the work of DC 127, uh, which is a, a work, a, a birth, a, a, let me start over. Hi, welcome to uh, Christ City Church. <laughs> I speak for a living, um, <laughs> despite what you've just experienced. Uh, for the past several weeks, we've been um, highlighting the work of DC 127, which is an organization that was started um, out of uh, the district church and was started at the same time that uh, what's now Christ City was started. Um, we have been a part of DC 127 throughout our entirety as a congregation. Um, and uh, one of the reasons, but not the only reason, is because we have this shared history. Um, one of the reasons that we've continued, but not the only reason to, uh, that we've continued to support and walk alongside DC 127 is because so many of the leaders of DC 127 have found their church home here at Christ City, whether it be executive director or board members or uh, staff or countless volunteers. But that's not the main reason why we support DC 127. Um, we, the main reason why we work with DC 127 and celebrate their work is because uh, the scriptures remind us that uh, true religion is that which cares for um, orphans and widows in their distress. And, and when we contextualize that for our own setting and our own context, we realize that there are families, even within our own city, that could use a, a little bit of help. That for one reason or another have gotten dislocated from uh, their families and need a community to come around them. That's why we support DC 127. There's a lot of different ways to jump into it. You can be a host home, you can be a community coach, you can be a, a, a parental support, be a babysitter to help undergird some of the families that are walking through a, a hardship. Everybody can do something. That's why we work with DC 127. And that's why we've been highlighting it over the course of these last months. And today what we've got um, on, your, on your seats is just a, a, a card, it's just a commitment card. Some of you have been in different spots, I, I, I know. I have. Um, my people in different places, so I know which ones of y'all. I won't look at you dead in your face right now, but I'm going to scan across the entirety of the congregation. You know who you are, that you've approached Ashley, that you've approached Caroline, and that you said, I I'm interested, but I'm not sure. I'm still sorting it out. That's fine. Continue to sort it out. But what we want is to give you a, a tangible thing that you can write your name on and check, yes, I'm interested. I'm interested in learning more about one of these ways that I can serve with DC 127. And so I, I just want you over the, while we're in this moment, for you to fill out that card if you're sensing, uh, I just want a little bit more information than we want you to, to make a response to that. You can drop that card in the offering basket um, when it comes around at the end of the service, and then uh, uh, Ashley and Caroline will follow up with you um, this week. There is a training, not this Saturday, but next, that we really want to encourage everyone to go to. You can find out everything you need to know about DC 127, but, but if you're sensing that God is saying, I want you to take the next step, just, just take the next step. Uh, you know, we don't know what the last step is, but you might know what the next one is. So take that next step as it relates to DC 127 and really want to encourage you to do that. So um, I just want to let you know kind of what's there and where we've been moving towards. We'll continue to hear about DC 127 throughout this year. This isn't the one time only time, but this is a unique time. And so I do want to put that point on it. So um, let me uh, pray. I just want us to pray again for DC 127. And I want to pray for those of you. There's about a a dozen, 15 of you within this room right here that have served over the past couple of years with DC 127. You volunteered in one capacity or another. That's a significant number of our, of our congregation. And so I just want to pray for the ongoing work of DC 127. I want to pray for those of you that have served in the past. And then for those of you that are considering what might it mean for me to take the first next step as it relates to DC 127, I want to pray for you. So let me just pray for us right now. Lord, I do, um, I do express gratitude 
for the heroes in this um, in this room and around the city that have um, that have worked to care for families that are in a rough spot. God, we pray for those that um, I'll pray for those right now that are considering, Lord, what what might you ask of me? How might you want me to jump in uh, to the work that DC one twenty seven is doing to care for to care for kiddos and families, uh, to learn from them. Uh, to be shaped by them, and then to bring to bear whatever gifts we might bring to bear and the help and support of families in this city. God, I pray that, um, that whatever that stirring is, God, that you would give clarity to it, that you would remind them that you're with them in those places where they might feel inadequate about taking the first next step, that they would remember that their adequacy is in you, and that, and that DC 127 will walk with them throughout it. God, for those that have served so faithfully in DC 127 over the last several years, God, I pray that they experience your delight. I pray that you would meet them in, um, in the hard spots that they've experienced. I pray that you would meet them in the fatigue, and I pray that you would meet them in the ways that you have shaped them through the course of their walking with families. God, I pray for the leadership of DC 127. I pray for Chelsea and others that continue to lead this amazing organization and pointing us all towards the day when all things are made new and right and whole. So God, we thank you for the opportunity to serve alongside them. Lord, whatever stirring you are placing uh, in our hearts or in our guts, God, I pray that we would listen to that and obey that. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Perfect. Hey, so welcome to February 2019. What a January, <laughs> right? <laughs> Some of you are like, "Woo, glad January is done. And it's funny because I remember like, you know, my first sermon of 2019, I was like, hey, how many of y'all are glad that you made it out of 2018? And some of y'all was like, me, two hands, right now, glad 2018 is done. Welcome to 2019. And now some of you are like, goodness gracious, January, what did you do to me? This was a, this was a rough one. There's um, not that you need more distractions, but one of the folks, one of the Accounts that I follow on Instagram is a restaurant in Austin, Texas called El Arroyo. I've never eaten there. I cannot uh, testify to the quality of their food or their drinks, but they have a sign out front that is absolutely amazing. It changes every day, and it's both inspirational and hilarious. (laughs) And this one hit me because I thought, I think that there's some of us in this room that are like, that's right. That is my testimony. I am present. January didn't get the best of me, but it was close. Um, And I think that there's a sentiment. It's like we just got started in 2019, and it's like we're stumbling into this. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Anybody else testify? Yeah, I see a hand. It's all one hand anyway. I'll take that one. Um, You know, it's like we can't find our footing. It's like somehow the cosmos is against us as we've started this year. Like there's no school. Like school started and then it didn't. And then like snow days. We canceled church one Sunday because there was snow, which my neighbors, many of whom have Catholic backgrounds, are like, my church didn't cancel. What's up with you, pastor? Like they just (laughs) hassle me. Like I have like a very, you know, little respect in the neighborhood it's like we've just like I haven't been in a good rhythm since December 20th you know like I just can't do it but here's the thing that I want to say to you to all of you I want to say welcome to February 2019 you made it and you're here you survived 100% of the hardest days of your past you're here (laughs) and also what I want to say is that it's not about how you start It's not about how you start. This 
year isn't going to be defined by its first moments and neither does it need to be defined by its worst moments. There's still a lot of road left to cover in front of us. My dad was a, um, he was a kind of a casual horse racing fan uh, and I inherited his nominal uh, fan status. In junior high, in junior high I would, um, Whenever the big horse races would come around, the, the Preakness, Belmont, Kentucky Derby, I, I would go to school, W.H. Uh, Gaston, junior high school, and I would take bets on the horse races, and, and I would win lunch money. And I would win lunch money because the truth of it is I was the only 13-year-old kid who cared anything about horse racing, and I would just cajole, you know, any of my friends out of their money. Um, but there's one horse race that sticks out in my mind as one of the all-time uh, greatest horse races. It was a 2009 Kentucky Derby. Anybody else? Horse? No? One guy. Got it. I'll take him. Perfect. Um, the 2009 Kentucky Derby, uh, Friesen Fire was the, uh, was the favorite going into it. Uh, Dunkirk and uh, Pioneer of the Nile were also sort of, they were the top three uh, favorites. Um, Pioneer won second. The other two uh, horses finished well behind the pack. But the horse that won was a long shot named Mind That Bird. Betting odds on Mind That Bird were 50 to 1. They were the worst odds that any horse could have. There were a couple of other horses that also had 50 to 1 odds. And when the race starts, uh, I'll just tell you, Mind That Bird was in last place. And not just last place, but like when they showed it on the screen, wasn't even in the screen last place. Started so far behind the pack you couldn't even see it. Now I could describe this, but I'm just going to show it to you, Okay. And uh, yes, I'm going to show a horse race <laughs> in church because that's what I'm going to do. Um, and what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to um, show you where mine that bird is. And they're off in the Kentucky Derby. And it's Joint of the Dancers racing for the lead. Musket Man has some early speed on the inside. Here's Regal Ransom with some speed as well. Beneath the Twin Spires the first time. Regal Ransom and Joint of the Dance will vie for the early lead. Pioneer of the Nile is right up there. And then it's Poppin' down toward the inside. He's now fourth. There's a party. Forwardly placed fifth on the outside. Can't see him now. Flying Private is sixth. Freezing Fire in and among horses oh. is now seventh. Musket Man is out of the bottom. Dunkirk is ninth on the outside. Then farther back here down on now. the rail, that is uh, Atomic Rain, uh, running in the 11th position, two lengths back, and General Quarters is now 12th. Nowhere to hide is 13th on the outside. Right outside, here. Bernie is now, now down toward the rail, and then on the outside, at the back of the pack, beginning to move up now, is uh, Hold Me Back. Advice is also right there toward the back of the pack, along with Chocolate Candy Summer Bird. Advice, the last of them all, is Mr. Hot Stuff. So down the back stretch run, or even be fine, be well behind the rest of them, is mind that bird. So down the back stretch run, and join in the dance. An impudent long shot leader here, 50 to 1, taking the field through an opening half mile that was strong, 47 and 1 fifth seconds. Regal Ransom is third. On the outside, pioneer of the Nile. Now Garrett Gomez asking him for a bit more. He's right there. Third on the outside, Desert Party is now fourth. Hold me back, fifth toward the inside. Papa Clem threads his way through horses. From six now, Musket Man is now seventh. Chocolate Candy is beginning to come alive now, and he's eighth on the outside. Then down toward the rail, it's advice. 
as the field turns for home. Top of the stretch. It's still joining the dance with a tenuous lead. Regal Ransom and Pioneer of the Nile strikes the front just outside the eighth hole. Musket Man is coming hard down the center of the track. And Papa Clem's right there, too. Down toward the He's inside, in the coming on through. That is where my that bird now is coming on to take the lead as they come down to the finish. And a spectacular, spectacular upset. My that bird has won the Kentucky. Mind that bird won by six and three quarters lengths. It was the largest margin of victory in over 60 years. Uh, and it was the, <laughs> the longest odds horse to win the Kentucky Derby in 85 years. Friends, it's not how you start. It's not how you start. This year isn't defined by its first moments and neither is your life. This year isn't to be defined by its worst moments, and neither are you. In the first sermon of the year, I said to you that if I know anything about God, it's that God is a God of new beginnings and of second chances. And while I'm not going to preach that sermon again, I am going to preach that message again. It's not how you start. Our faith is rooted in the truth that because Jesus gives new life, because he extends invitations to us to surrender our old ways of living and to join him in his work in the world and in our lives, we can start again. We can be a people that aren't defined by how we start, but rather how we finish with him. January of 2018, we launched into a 50-week sermon series, walking through God's, God's, God's gospel, yes, which we call John's Gospel. From January to March of 2018, we went through the first five chapters of John. We entitled the section Stories of Belief and anchored our exposition of John 1 through 5 and John's thesis statement, which he lays out towards the end of the book in John 20, wherein he says that his reason for writing the gospel is so that we might believe. John 20, verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that you may believe that this is who Jesus is, that, the son of, that he's the Son of God, and that by believing in his name, you might have life. He's writing this so that the readers might believe, that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that we might believe that He's the one who rescues and redeems and restores. He's writing so that those of us reading down through the ages will see and know that Jesus is worthy of our trust and of our faith and of our belief. We took a summer break from John and then picked back up in the fall of 2018. We covered chapters 6 through 10 and that section of the Gospels we called Stories of Life. For it was in these chapters that again and again we encounter stories of Jesus suffering, uh, Jesus offering himself as the life that we were meant to live, a life lived in relationship to God. It was in this section that we see Jesus saying things like, I'm the bread of life. I have the words of eternal life in John 6. He is the light of the world, a metaphor for the life that he offers in John 8. In John 10, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Throughout the fall of 2018, we noticed this cadence in John's gospel of identifying Jesus as the one who offered true, abiding, and eternal life. And now, as we come into this new year, as we head down the home stretch, as it were, of John, chapters 11 through 21, we'll be in John now until just past Easter when we finally finish up, 15 months after when we first started. 
And after looking at where John takes us from this point forward, we've landed on a heading for this section of John. Life, death, and life again. Life, death, and life again. Over the course of this section of John, we will see Jesus continuing to teach, continuing to be present, continuing to be the God incarnate, displaying the humanity, his humanity, and identifying with us. And yet we will see him consistently pointing to his death and insinuating his resurrection. We jump back into John, really, in one of the quintessential stories of the gospel. It's the miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. If any story encapsulates or is a good entryway for us to understand this section of the Gospels as life and death and life again, it's this story. The setting of the story is the village of Bethany, which is just a few miles east of Jerusalem. It's where Lazarus is and it's where he's from. Lazarus is the brother of two sisters, of Mary and Martha, who are also from Bethany. We see Mary and Martha in other parts of John's Gospel as well as in Luke's. In the opening lines of John 11, we're told the setting and the situation. Verse 1, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. The, the sisters, they, these sisters, Mary and Martha, again, they're disciples of Jesus. They're friends of Jesus, and their brother is sick. Their brother is friends of Jesus. And their hope is that Jesus will immediately come to Bethany and to heal Lazarus. Because Jesus is just a few miles away at this point from Bethany. He's at the Jordan River, um, which is even further east from Jerusalem. Nevertheless, news of Lazarus' illness, it travels and it finally reaches Jesus. But Jesus' response at this point is, it's, it's a bit curious. Verse 4. When he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. And Jesus' response here, just at at a face level, it can seem cryptic uh, at best or Goodness, nefarious at worst, frankly. In the moment, it can seem like Jesus is sort of either speaking in metaphor or illusion, or that somehow he's just like making Lazarus some weird pawn in God's work, that Lazarus has fallen ill and then will die simply so that God's glory can be put on display. That It just seems like he's just moving pawn pieces around. However, what such a reading will miss is the larger narrative that John is putting together That narrative being that Jesus is worthy of our belief. He's worthy of our faith. Throughout John's gospel, what he aims to highlight is Jesus' humanity. He opens his gospel, in the beginning was the word, and the word became flesh. And John is wanting the readers to know that though Jesus was God, he was was, um, also, uh, as a human, he was governed by the whims and wishes and even the chaos of the day that he understood what it was to have the urgent push into the important. Jesus was a person. He was a man. He was able to identify with us in our own circumstances. But this isn't the only thing that's bound up in this exchange. Jesus gives us our first glimpse into the theme of this section of life, death, and life again. Jesus says that Lazarus' sickness, it's, it's not going to end in death. He's wanting us to know that death won't have the last word on the matter. And while this story starts with sickness, it's not how things start that matter with the Lord. 
And as we read this story, we have the benefit of living on the other side of Lazarus' resurrection and Jesus' resurrection. But the downside of that is that we can, we can miss the tension that's happening in the story. We miss the, the gut wrench that's going on in the scene. We, we miss the urgency. Jesus' delay in rushing to Lazarus and responding to the request from friends that he loves, in the moment it's quite puzzling. But when we exercise our backward glance... We see that Jesus isn't bound by time and constraints of the immediate or the urgent. It's right and reasonable for Mary and Martha to call him because they know that he's the one that can heal. And it's a reminder that Jesus is still in control even when he's not on the scene in this case. After two days, then Jesus returns to Judea, makes his way into the village of Bethany, and the disciples are actually a bit nervous about Jesus traveling back. In verse 8, they say, but Rabbi, they say, a short uh, while ago, the Jews, they tried to stone you. You want to go back there? Like, they remember what took place in Jerusalem just a few verses ahead uh, where the Jewish leaders, they're enraged at Jesus' teaching and they begin picking up stones because they want to stone him before Jesus flees the scene. So he sort of stirred up some trouble, made his way to the Jordan, and now he's like, all right, let's go back. And they're like, uh, you remember rocks. Let's, I don't think this is the best move for us. So they're nervous about it. To move the story along, though, Jesus and the disciples, they travel to Bethany. And when Jesus arrives, Lazarus has already passed away. Verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. And many Jews had come to to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. That Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Verse 17, it lets us in on the fact that Lazarus has been dead for seven, for four days. John wants to make crystal clear to us that Jesus isn't performing a a resuscitation, but actually a resurrection. Lazarus wasn't in a coma or sleeping or in a medical state. He had been dead and buried for four days. Now, uh, a Jewish belief held that the soul left the body after three days. And so John is including the number of days in the narrative to further the point that Lazarus wasn't just sort of dead. He was dead, dead. The sorrow in Martha's soul is full, and when she reaches Jesus, she said to him, if you had been here, Martha is making a statement of belief. Even in the midst of her grief, she's still making a statement of belief. She's acknowledging that Jesus is the one who could have healed Lazarus. She's stating that she does have faith in Jesus and his power, even while she's still grieving. There's a sting of anger in the things that she is saying. There's a sting of disappointment that's there. Mary arrives on the scene and she says the same thing that her sister says in verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and she saw him, she fell at his feet and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her were also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and he was troubled. Verse 34, where have you laid him? He asked, come and see. They replied, verse 35, Jesus wept. So much in these verses. One of the first things that I think we can bring to bear is that it's okay to bring your disappointments to God. 
It's okay to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, you let me down. You didn't come through for me on that one. I've shared part of this story before when Lisa and I were serving overseas, and um, it was an incredibly hard season for us. It was hard on us physically and emotionally. It was the hardest and roughest time in our marriage. There were cracks that began to develop, and we just wondered, Lord, it seems like you've let us down here. We've come to serve you in this way. We've come over here and, and expected to see you move in power and might, and instead we feel like we're whimpering along. I remember being put out of the country, and then we were nomadic for a long time, and we didn't have a place to live exactly, and so we traveled around and couch surfed, which is a terrible thing to do when you have a 16-month-old baby, which we did. It was hard on our son. We wondered what sort of damage we were even doing to him in the name of Jesus. We came to a place of just saying, Jesus, you, you let me down. You didn't come through like I thought you would. It's okay to bring things that grieve you to Jesus. Martha takes Jesus to where his brother is laid. He says, where have you laid him? It's okay to present those things to the Lord and say, this thing, specifically, not generally, this is the place where you let me down, Lord. And that's what I'm grieving. My brother is gone. There's a tomb here. Don't you see it? And he's inside and my love is inside and my hopes are inside. My dreams are inside. My, my uh, expectations are inside that and it's covered up with a rock now. That's what I'm grieving, Jesus. You let me down here. It's okay to show Jesus the things that you grieve and the things that you have laid to rest. And the thing that I think is important for us to know at this point is that Jesus weeps with us. If ever you're in a Bible drill and you need to have a Bible verse memorized, I've got one for you. John 11:35. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Say Jesus wept. You guys have now memorized John 11:35. He wept. He wept with Mary. He wept with Martha, and he weeps with all of us in our loss and sorrow. He weeps at our lost loved ones and our lost jobs. He weeps at the death of our dreams and at the end of relationships. He shares our sorrows. In John 35, what we see is the collision, though, of Jesus' humanity and his divinity, because the thing is, Jesus knew that Lazarus would die, but he also knew that Lazarus would be raised again. But he also knew that Lazarus would die again. Lazarus didn't live forever. He was eventually laid to rest in a tomb again. But he also knew that Lazarus would be raised again. And it's in that collision of Jesus' humanity and his divinity that we see these things collide because Jesus wept in that moment and because he experiences sadness and sorrow and loss. He can identify with us. I know that there are those of you in this room that at this moment are experiencing loss. Folks that you love pass from this life to the life to come. You're witnessing the death of opportunities or relationships. You're standing bedside at hopes in one form or another as they're being laid in tombs. And what John wants you to know is that Jesus is with you and that he grieves with you and that you are not alone in your sorrow. 
Jesus' presence, it changes the chemistry of situations. And I won't tell you that you will experience Lazarus' resurrections in the situations that you are facing. But what I can tell you is that Jesus' presence is with you in the midst of the sadness and the tears. And and it's a mercy. I have a friend who taught me this more than anyone that I've known. Uh, Brooke Owens was part of our church. And after a hard-fought battle with cancer, she passed away in the summer of 2016. She was an aerospace engineer, but she was also a DJ. She could spin it. She was a storyteller. She was a spoken word artist, and she often wrote about wrestling with a dreaded disease and how you maintain hope and faith uh, when you're faced with grief that's at your door. She wrote a poem that I want to read some excerpts from. It's called Enough. My life, just the simple breath in and out, is a gift of more worth than anything else I've been whining about. This realization, even for just a moment, drowns out all the criticisms and self-doubt and the coveting of those who seem to have that which I find myself without. I've been so preoccupied with what I've been denied that I've ignored that which is within, beside, and behind. Sure, I've got problems, and some of them's real, real. But I can't keep harping on how I got the raw end of the deal because, honestly, that's what'll kill me. And I can't go out like that. See, it is enough. I have plenty to feed me. Love, friendships, shelter, and family. Oh, and this whole Jesus pardoning sin thing, I got that too. And that noise is free, a forever long guarantee. It is enough. If right now in the full ick of the suck I can breathe out, it is enough. If in my dark shadow days I can claim bounty in the ways for which I've been provided for. If in the presence of pain I can count as gain the number of sunsets I've witnessed or the sweetness of songs like Bootylicious or the list could go on and on and on. And that's kind of the point, isn't it? Then if we can feast in famines, and dance amidst death threats and murmur gratitudes while gunfire grazes us because one day Jesus is going to start the party. Like for reals. And then he's going to drop the mic and go get himself a sandwich and probably a glass of water (laughs) because we all know how he likes to party and it's going to be epic. John wants us to know that Jesus is with us in the grief and that he grieves with us. But he also wants us to know that grief has an expiration date. It won't last forever. It's not how we start. Jesus goes to the tomb. And he has the people that are gathered there, they remove the stone that covers the entryway to the tomb, and Jesus performs a miracle. He calls Lazarus's name. He says his name, and it's at that name when Jesus calls our name, we come alive. And so, Jesus, so Lazarus comes alive when he hears the voice of his master, when he hears the voice of his friend. He comes out of the tomb, and he walks out. 
As theologian Caroline Lewis of Luther Seminary notes, we regularly confess that not even death can separate us from the love of God, and it's John's gospel that makes that abundantly clear, that such a confession is not simply a theoretical or even hopeful assertion. It is given meaning and truth and is an embodied reality in Lazarus' own life and death and resurrected life. It's not just a theoretical resurrection. It is a truthful one. Life, death, and life again. The thing about this miracle, the thing about miracles in general, is that they point us to the kingdom. They point us to the work of the king. All of the miracles that we see in the Gospels, that that's what they're pointing us to. When Jesus calms the sea, it's pointing us to the kingdom. When Jesus turns water into wine, it's pointing us towards the inbreaking kingdom. When he feeds 5,000, it's pointing us to the kingdom. When he, uh, when he heals the blind man, all of it is to display God's power over all things and provide echoes of the day when all things are made new and right. The miracles are to be a foretaste of the coming kingdom and a signpost pointing us towards the inbreaking kingdom of God. The trouble is in the Gospels, with each miracle, people sought the miracle rather than Jesus. He feeds 5,000 and crowds follow him because so they, they got hungry again. They wanted more food, not more Jesus. When Jesus heals people, the crowds follow him so that they can get healed. They wanted the healing, not just more Jesus. And that's reasonable, but it's missing the points. We want the kingdom, but not the king. The centerpiece of this whole story is found in 25 and 26. Right in the middle of the story, Jesus gives us the keys to the episode that he's, that's happening here. In verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me, they'll never die. And then he ends it with a question, do you believe this? It's an honest question, is one that rests with us in this room even now. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. I am the one to which you come. Don't just seek the life. Seek me, and you get both. You get relationship with the one that loves you and made you and rescued you and created you and the life that you are aching for. Just as the point of the feeding wasn't that folks would have food and that that would only nourish them for the day, but he's pointing to the day when we have all that we need and that he himself is the bread that comes down out of heaven. So too, the point here isn't simply that we have the benefits from Jesus, but that we have him. And out of that faith and out of that life, we discover life. Jesus raising Lazarus was an Echo of the day when death is finally destroyed and the barriers to relationship with him are eliminated. I remember when my, um, when my dad passed away of realizing that that was sort of the ultimate insult because you couldn't, there wasn't a relationship until, until we all experienced the resurrected life. I remember trying to explain it to the kids and um, it was over the course of several days and trying to figure out, you know, how do I tell the kids, like, the end isn't the end? Like, you know, because they're like, I don't, you know, they were kids at the time. They're still kids now. They're older now than they were then. It happens. But then I remember the point when we went to visit my dad's gravesite. And I've showed this picture before, but where it was no longer me explaining to the kids of what it meant to follow Jesus and what life, death, and life again meant. They actually, they actually showed it to me. 
And I was able to capture a picture of it. So, um, that's the gravestone. And that's Elias. And he's a superhero. Because that would be proper attire to go to the cemetery. There's <laughs> a hoodie and a cape. And I snapped it and it was like the Lord saying, yeah, with like the weakness of a child, I've overcome death and all of its sons and daughters. And it won't always be this way. This is not how we start. It's how we finish with him. And he's written these things so that we might have life and life to the full with Christ. Because death doesn't have the last say. And it's not just about victory, but it's about relationship with the one who secures victory and life. And that's the invitation to us this morning. That's the question that we should linger with is the one that comes out of John 11 when Jesus says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Do you believe this? And the invitation is to say yes. Even in the midst of a tomb, even in the uh, face of the sorrow to say, yeah, I'll walk with you. Let me pray for us. Father, <laughs> we made it to February 2019 by your grace and mercy. And God, I pray that in this moment that we would listen well to your words to us, to your invitation to us to place faith and belief and trust in you, the one in whom our hopes hang. God, I pray uh, for friends in this room, Lord. I pray that those that are, that are here, that they, that they would linger on the question of, do you believe this? And God, that you would continue to nudge them ever, 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 little by little by little, that you would nudge them towards relationship with you. Lord, uh, uh, folks are facing some real things in this room. Lord, whatever it is that we're facing, it's not bigger than you, it's not stronger than you, it's not, it's not an overpowering boogeyman that, that you fear or tremble at, but Lord, we sometimes do. And so God, I pray that you would stir in us, that you would stir in us confidence in you. God, I pray that maybe there would even be one here, even in this moment, that would want to take that first next step in following you. I would say like Mary and Martha, yes, we believe. In the midst of our grief, we believe. We don't know what, the, what that looks like or exactly what it means, but we'll take a first step towards you. 
God, I pray that you would nudge. Lord, in whatever ways, all of us need to be reminded that you, that you are our rescuer, that you are the one that restores, that you are the one that overcomes, that you are the one that secures, that you would remind us of that. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Tommy and Ashley are going to continue to lead us this morning. And there's a couple of things I want us to do. First, I want to say, if you're one who has been on the fence as it relates to Jesus and faith, but that coming through the holiday seasons, coming into the new year, you sense that maybe not all of your questions have been answered about faith, but that enough of them have been answered that you want to take the first next step in following Jesus. Do you want to say in response to Jesus' question, do you believe this? Do you want to say, I, as much as I can, I believe it. There's a lot that I don't, a lot that I don't understand, but as much as I can, I want to say yes to you. Then we want to invite you to respond to that invitation that Jesus is extending you this morning. With members at the prayer station that can pray with you, that can walk with you in taking the first steps towards following Jesus. And whatever your excuses, you don't know about where I am, or your excuses if you don't know the questions that I have, you're right, we can talk through those together, but in the meantime, submit them to the Lord because he's the one that ultimately matters most. So the invitation is for you to take that first step in saying yes to him. As we continue to worship, we also invite you to the table, to the communion table. This is the place where we remember the body and blood of Christ that was broken and shed for us, that was created so that we might experience the resurrection and life that Jesus is offering and affording us, placing our faith and our belief and our trust in Him. So if you're one that's following Jesus, we invite you to the table. There'll be two stations here, a gluten-free station there. Maybe you're one, you're like, I, I, I love Jesus, I follow him, but man, there is, there is a, I, I, I do feel like I'm standing by a bedside watching something pass from this life to the next, or someone pass from this life to the next. There's something that you're grieving or filled with sorrow regarding. And we want to invite you to respond as well. If you want someone to pray over you again, the prayer stations will be there. Or if you just want a place to just be on your own before the Lord, then you can be here. You'll be undisturbed and you can just pray and cry out to the Lord and let him meet you in your faith and in your sorrow. So as we continue to worship, I want you to respond in whatever ways you need to individually respond. Taking a first step, taking another step, receiving prayer. Whatever it is, this space is for you as you follow the leading of the Holy Spirit.